Father God, I, I just give you praise, Lord, uh, for last night once again and for uh, the amazing uh, outpouring of food and love and fellowship that we had. And Lord, I as well, I lift these two men up before you, Jim and Dan. And Father, I just pray your healing power would be upon them now. That uh, for Dan, that he would be able to, uh, to swallow and eat normally without these procedures, Father. And for Jim, that uh, everything turns, al- turns out to be fine, that there is no uh, further indication of any bleeding in his brain. So, uh, Lord, we, we lift them both up to you, knowing that you uh, are a healing God. And I pray as well for this message today, that you would speak through me and uh, give me the words to share. Bless the uh, hearing of these words, Lord God. And in all things, we give you praise and glory. And I ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you know, Christmas is a season that evokes a lot of different emotions with people. And uh, for me, personally, probably the biggest emotion that it evokes is a sense of anticipation combined with an insatiable curiosity. And this goes all the way back to my childhood. And this, I will share up front, this was one of my wife's favorite stories about my youth. Um, And when Christmas would come around, the anticipation and the curiosity would be so great that I could not wait until Christmas morning to find out what was under the tree. So I became kind of a Christmas ninja. (laughs) Now, (laughs) I I had that thought, and I thought, I wonder if I can find a picture to fit that. I couldn't believe how many pictures of Christmas ninjas there were. (laughs) I had never... I thought I sort of was original to the term, right? But not really. Did you have the full uh, uniform? D- no. <laughs> Just pajamas. Um, so here's, what, here's the way I sort of developed my ninja skills. So I would wake up in the middle of the night. This is Christmas morning. So I guess it, I, it was Christmas morning to us in a sense. But it was way earlier than anybody else would get up. So I would wake up, I would summon all of my stealthy ninja powers, (laughs) and I would creep from my bedroom through the house into the living room where the tree was. And then I would proceed to go through all of the packages, removing the tape, taking the edges off, checking out to see what was there, put it all back, tape it together. Fortunately, I, uh, I have this very precise nature, and so I was able to get it all back together exactly the way it looked, uh, and no one was the wiser. Uh, and then, once that was finished, I would reverse course, sneak back as my father and brother slept, and get into bed. Now, of course, I never went back to sleep because I was way too excited at this point. Um, so eventually though, as most people do, I sort of outgrew the whole nighttime Christmas ninja thing. 
Um, but did I stop satisfying my anticipation and my curiosity? Heck no. I just took on a different mission. Now I would try to find out where all the stuff was stashed before Christmas morning ever got there. <laughs> And I'm fairly certain that I had a uh, near-perfect record in locating the presents. Um, but I do remember one year where I thought it wasn't going to happen because it, it was really bugging me. I had gone through the whole house, and I hadn't found anything. I'm like, what is going on here? I'm losing my touch. And so I was laying in bed, and this was just really weighing on me. <laughs> Yeah, it was like really important stuff. So this is really weighing on me. And it was like all of a sudden I had this flash of insight. I, never, I haven't checked the trunk of Dad's car. <laughs> so at the first opportunity that I got, I grabbed the keys, went out into the garage, opened the trunk. Jackpot! <laughs> there they were. The ninja strikes again. And, you know, I w as I was thinking about this, I, it really sort of occurred to me that one of the reasons that I think Christ the Christmas season in general evokes such strong emotions and feelings in people is because of the music that we listen to. You know, Christmas music, and I guess even maybe more so than the religious-themed Christmas music, but the secular Christmas music that we listen to, uh, it really features some of the most descriptive lyrics, uh, and you can actually hear what they are, as opposed to some other kinds of music that you have no idea what may be being said. But these lyrics paint such amazing word pictures, you know? And when you sort of couple that with the, sort of the, the naturally strong tie there can be between a particular type of music or a particular song, and a particular memory that you have, and all you have to do is hear that song, and it's like you're right back in that memory again. And so it not, shouldn't be surprising to us necessarily that, that this music does evoke these kinds of feelings to us. And so I, I was just thinking about several of them, and I thought, first of all, I am thinking that maybe... We may need some batteries here, but we'll see. So take the Christmas song, for example. Just th the very first couple of lyrics. Chestnuts roasting on an open fire, Jack Frost nipping at your nose, Yuletide carols being sung by a choir and folks dressed up like Eskimos. Now, if you hear those words in the middle of July, <laughs> you might even get a chill. And you throw in that, lot, that line about yuletide carols, and suddenly you can just imagine that you're outside on a December night caroling around in your neighborhood. I mean, it has the power you know, to do, do just that. Now, one of the interesting things I, f I learned about that song was that it actually was written in July. <laughs> Mel Torme, some of you know, and another gentleman, wrote the song, and the whole reason for the song was that it was so stinking hot wherever they were that the guy was thinking, well, maybe if I just think cool thoughts, it'll help. <laughs> so he had written down some of the very first words 
of the, the, the initial verse of that song, and Torme saw them, and he said in like 45 minutes they had written this song. So I just thought that was kind of interesting. Um, for somebody else, Blue Christmas. And that's, you know, typically may evoke feelings of loneliness or loss. That is, unless you're listening to the Porky Pig version. <laughs> Probably don't have that same sense of loneliness as it would if it was Elvis singing. Um, White Christmas, for example. Um, Maybe you get these feelings of childhood Christmases or a snowy Christmas in particular that you experienced. Or it might even make you think of the movie. You know, or, you know, and sitting around as a family and watching this. For me, it always takes, I think I've told this story before, but it always takes me back to this fraternity house uh, my freshman year in college where I was sitting and watched the movie for the very first time with my roommate who couldn't believe I had never seen it before. Um... If you're a kid, all right, really? <laughs> there we go. Okay. So if you're a kid and you hear Santa Claus is coming to town, well, right away, that just drives up the level of anticipation, doesn't it? And then y it may even be mixed with a little bit of fear. Because you start to wonder, okay, uh, does my nice weigh more than my naughty this year? H how's that looking? Right? Um, and again, for me, one of my perennial favorites is um, have a holly jolly Christmas. I, you know, I just can't stop being happy when I hear Burl Ives singing that. <laughs> you know, it's, there's just something about it. Uh, I can't almost even stop myself from singing along with him. Um, and I try. And, of course, there is the just outright sadness and the feeling of loss brought on every time that I hear Grandma got run over <laughs> by a reindeer. <laughs> it's so sad. It is. It's just sad. And, but you know, I feel pretty confident in, in saying this, that if I went around the room and I asked everybody here, okay, what, what's your favorite Christmas song and why? And see, that's the more important question is why is that one your, more, your favorite? Um, it would probably be in many cases that you would name a particular song precisely because of the emotions or the feelings that sort of come up in you when you hear that, and that's what makes it special. Um, and the thing is that for a lot of people, Christmas is really all about feelings. Some might try to recreate the feelings of Christmas that they had for their own children. You know, it was just a very powerful thing for them, and they felt a certain way, and they want their kids to experience the same thing. You know, for others, it's a lonely time. It's, uh, and, and this could come and go for all of us, where there's some sadness there, because it's maybe the first Christmas that, there, that we are without someone who has always been a part of those Christmases. And so there's some of that, you know, that's, that's running through us. Others, I think, just love the season because it makes them joyful. 
They just like it because it makes them feel good. But what about us as Christians? Now you might think that I'm somehow implying that um, Christians should just ignore their feelings at Christmas. And, and that's not at all what I'm saying. I've been a follower of Jesus for decades, truly following. And I still, you know, really enjoy Christmas. I like to kind of pretend at times to my wife that I don't. Because if I did, she would start in September putting <laughs> things up. And I just try to hold the fence on that as long as I can. Thanksgiving is the rule at our house. We're not going any earlier than Thanksgiving. Let's at least get one holiday out of the way before we start in on another one. Um, but what I am saying is that we shouldn't get so lost and so tangled up in all of the feelings that we have about Christmas that we forget that Christmas, and by that I really mean the birth of Jesus, is actually not about feelings at all. And as we've been doing now throughout this Advent season, we're going to look at this idea through the lens of John's Gospel. So I would like to see now, let's see what God has to say about this whole idea of, of feelings. So if you would, if you have a Bible, if you have some in the, in the chair underneath, or if you've brought your own, please turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 15, and we're going to look at verse 5, and then we're going to jump down and look at 9 through 14. So verse 5, and then 9 through 14. I'm going to take a minute while we're doing that and reload All right, so starting in chapter 15, verse 5, it says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now let's stop there for a moment. So within the Jewish tradition, the vine was a picture of Israel. All right, that's why Jesus is bringing this up right here. Psalm 80, verses 8 through 18, um, really talks about the fact that God brought this vine out of Egypt and planted it in the Promised Land. Okay? But what happened, and the psalm also talks about this, is that while it was there, it was ravaged by wild animals, and it needed protecting and reestablishing. Okay, so that speaks to the things that happened to Israel while they were there. And so this, this vineyard of Israel, said Isaiah in chapter 5 of his book, uh, has borne wild grapes instead of proper ones. And other prophets in Scripture have used kind of the same picture of the vine. So we have that as sort of the picture that we're operating from, and into that whole idea steps Jesus. And Jesus says that he is the true vine. Well, what does he mean by that? Well, what he's saying is, 
the only thing that he really can mean is that he himself is the true Israel. That he is the one in whom God's purposes are now resting. And that all of his followers are members of God's people, his true people, if they belong to him and remain in him. So this picture of the vine that he's speaking about here isn't just a clever illustration, you know, the idea of being you know, a branch and the vine within the branch and so forth. No, it's, it makes some things easier to understand. But what he's really saying here, I think, is more aligned with this idea that he is now the true vine. He is now the true Israel. And that we are part of that as well. And I, I want to point out just briefly the latter part of this where it says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Okay? Just file that away for a second. We're going to come back to that. So m let's move on now, jumping down to verse 9. It says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Now, this is right beginning about here, this is truly one of the great love passages in all of Scripture. Six times in the next 11 verses, the disciples are going to be told to love one another. So Jesus is really pounding away at this point about love. And he is, as he has done before, he's once again placing himself between the Father and his people, right? So what he's essentially saying is that the Father loves first, the Son reflects that love, and that we who are his people are supposed to remain in that love. And, you know, there's this thought that, you know, if we're abiding as vine-like branches, that there's, that's implying some sort of a mystical relationship here. Kind of sounds like it. But Jesus puts that to rest right away because what he then says almost immediately is that it centers on obedience. It's not mystical at all. It's not even really hard to figure out. Maybe hard to do, but it's not hard to figure out. And, you know, I was looking at this, and I, I being familiar with this passage, you've seen this word abide before. And it's very prominent, especially in these verses. And so I was like, okay, abide. I understand sort of what that means, but I'm not really sure, what is it saying? How could I make this more clear? So I started to play around with it a little bit. <coughs> and I looked up the definition of abide. Because I really want us to get this. You know, what, I want us to understand how can I take this and do something with it. Well, if you look up the definition of abide, it is it means to live with, okay? But that's still sort of on the passive side. And I was looking for something that gave it a little bit more of a sense of action. <coughs> and so after looking at it, I came up with the idea of do life. And we talk about doing life, right? That's sort of one way we talk about our small groups that it's a place where you can do life with one another. 
And really what we mean by that is it's, a, it's an opportunity to share, to come together with a group of friends who know you and love you and who are trustworthy and you have the opportunity to sort of process through some of what you're going through, you know, whether it's a good time, whether it's a hard time. It's it, that's what doing life sort of means, right? We're going to do this together. And so what I did was I thought, well, wonder what it would sound like if I replaced those words. And it sounds like this. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Do life with my love. If you keep my commandments, you will do life with my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and do life with his love. Does that make it a little bit easier to understand? You know, what he's really saying is, we're supposed to go out. And, and that love is supposed to be a part of us all the time, right? That's what doing life, you know, as we go out and we just do life, whatever that looks like for you, we're supposed to be doing it with that sense of God's love as being a part of it. And so to me, that helps me a lot to sort of think about what that means better than just abiding, which, it, you know, to me always just makes me think of sort of sitting, all right, I'm abiding in God's love, right? I'm not really doing anything, but I'm abiding. So this idea of doing life, to me, helps because it gives me a better sense of how we do that. And we do it, <coughs> as I said, by living our life while obeying his commandments. And that makes it this more active process. And I think that's a very important distinction Again, as we're going to see here in a moment. So we're sort of building towards something here. So then in verse 11, he goes on and he says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Now, here he's introducing a new word in this whole discourse. And this really, starting in chapter 14 or 15, this is sort of like the last major teaching section in all of the Gospels. Okay, so this is sort of the last place where Jesus is really doing some extensive teaching. And then from then to the end of John's gospel uh, is really sort of the end of his life. So what he's saying is that he wanted them, these disciples that he's speaking to, to experience the joy that he had already found in obedience, right? And that's the key. It's kind of like what we were talking about last week, do whatever he tells you. It's that idea of being obedient. Um, and what, he's, what I think Jesus is telling them right here is, is, look, this isn't a hardship. We think of it sometimes. You know, obeying God is such a hardship. What he's saying, I think, is that, look, it's the road to liberation. That's the beautiful thing about it. There was one theologian that I was reading, and, and, and they observed this about this passage. It is an inspiring thought that Jesus calls his followers into joy. The Christian life is not some shallow, insipid following of a traditional pattern. See, and I don't want to offend anyone here, but that was my view of the Catholic Church. Now, this is a teenager's view, so you have to keep that in mind. But when I was growing up, that's what it looked like to me. 
a shallow, insipid following of a traditional pattern. So he says, no, it's not that. And I, and, uh, you know, I know there are lots of Catholic churches that are far from what I experienced growing up. So again, don't, please don't take this as some sort of condemnation or trashing of that. It's not. It's my experience alone. Okay. But he goes on to say, it is a life characterized by unexhausted and inexhaustible power for fresh creation. Doesn't that sound good? I think that sounds really good. Let's pick it up again at verse 12. We'll go to the end, 12 through 14. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if if you do what I command you. Now, when we study all of the things that Jesus told us to do in all four of the Gospels, we see that he left many commands for us to do. Not a, you know, an innumerable number, but there were many things that he said for us to do. But these words of his in verse 12, they really seem to take precedence over all of the others. John never forgot them. And in fact, they appear in a variety of forms, especially in John's epistles, letters that he wrote. These same words come back. And this this whole central command has got nothing to do with doctrine. It has nothing to do with church size. It has nothing to do with what type of worship you may have or you may like or not like. It couldn't be more simple to understand, and yet... It couldn't be more difficult to carry out. Love each other as I have loved you. To love this way promotes unity instead of rivalry. To love this way promotes trust instead of suspicion. To love this way promotes obedience instead of self-assertion. And the measure of our love for one another is that of his love for us, which John gives us in probably one of the most dramatic verses in the entire New Testament, and that's verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. See, on first glance at this, we naturally think of Jesus and and how he literally laid down his life for us at Calvary. And I'm sure that's what Jesus meant and what John intended by writing this down. But I don't believe it was ever either of their intention to promote the idea that the Christian life is about literally dying for someone else. That doesn't make any sense. And so I like to think about laying down one's life as referring to sort of complete self-sacrifice. I thought of it like this. So one day I've got this long list of things that I want to get done. And you call me and you say, hey, Jeff, uh, I'd like you to come over here and wash my windows and peel some onions and wash the dog. Give the dog a bath. All right, now those are three things 
that if I never did them again, I could die a happy man. <laughs> so, assuming that the things that are on my list are of my own making, not a list that was perhaps given to me by somebody else, <laughs> I could choose to do what my friend asked me to do. Effectively laying down my life, putting it on hold, so to speak, so I can go help this friend out. That's what I think Jesus and, of course, John expect us to take away from this verse. That it's that idea of self-sacrificing love that is encompassed in the idea of laying down one's life for one's friend. So we've come to the end of this passage, and it's clearly talking about the importance of love. And you might think, well, okay, Christmas is about love. Well, duh. Good talk there, Dr. Obvious. <laughs> but see, here's the thing. I think far too often we default to this thinking that the love of Christmas is another one of those feelings and emotions that I mentioned at the beginning of the message. So here's what I want you to remember. And it's really what I believe this passage is telling us about the love of Christmas. And that is this. The love of Christmas is your intentional involvement in another's life. The love of Christmas is your intentional involvement in another's life. In much the same way as John 3.16 I think John 15, 13 provides this necessary link between Bethlehem and Calvary. And we don't fully understand and appreciate the birth of Jesus unless we view it through the lens of the resurrection, which obviously has the crucifixion in view as well. But there's even more to it than that, I think. You see, Christmas is not solely about Jesus being born and then literally laying down his life for us. Christmas is just about as much of you being born again and then figuratively laying down your life for another. The love of Christmas is your intentional involvement in another's life. That's how it's possible to do life with his love. Now, yes, there is certainly a place in Christmas and in the Christian life for feelings and emotions, okay? If that wasn't the case, we would see Jesus' life as being devoid of all feelings and emotions. But it clearly wasn't. If you read through the Gospels, what you see is that at various times, he expresses disappointment, he expresses tiredness, he gets angry, he endures suffering, he has empathy for people, he understands other people, and those are just some of what I could come up with that we see illustrated in stories about his life. You know, it never, it never says that Jesus was happy, but you know he was. You know, that's just another one of those emotions. I tend to think of a very joyful Jesus. 
I mean, I think you can read the Gospels and, you, you know, you can come away with a picture of a very somber, serious man who's always, you know, saying these odd things that nobody can ever figure out exactly what he's saying. And yes, that's true, except I'm not so sure about the somber, serious part. I mean, I think he meant what he said, but I think there was a lot of joy because if there wasn't, people wouldn't want to be around him. Do you want to be around people that are not joyful? No, I don't think any of us do. And so it just it's one of those things that sort of tells me that he was a very joyous, joyful person because people wanted to be around him. And so clearly we can have feelings and emotions. And there's certainly a place in the Christian life for a quiet inner spirituality. And again, the example is Jesus. Time and time again, we see him going off to be by himself, to pray to his father, to find out, okay, Dad, what do you want me to do? How should I handle this? What's the mission for today? But I think the most prominent place in the Christian life is reserved for love. Defined by John, demonstrated by Jesus as the intentional involvement in another person's life. It's how as a church we're going to fulfill our mission, the one that's right up there on the wall. Our mission is to make disciples. We believe that the best way to do so is by practicing a naturally supernatural lifestyle obeying the words of Jesus, and doing the works of Jesus. Hello. We actively look for ways to reach out to our neighbors in our community. See, reaching out to friends and neighbors and community and doing the works of Jesus is the epitome of being intentionally involved in another person's life. That's it. That's it right there. And what would happen if we actually did that? Stop and think about that for a minute. What if everybody here really started to do what that sentence says? That sentence. <laughs> it's the same. Well, here's what I think. This is what, what I start to dream. If everybody did that, then this church would get so full we would have to add a second service. And then if everyone kept doing it, we would have to add a third one, probably on Saturday night. <laughs> this is starting to sound a little bit like holding up Moses' arms, right? <laughs> if this is the way we're going to go, I'm going to need some help here in a minute. And then we'd have to find another building. And think about what the community would start to look like. Think about what your workplace would look like. Think about what your family would look like.
stream a little bit. But don't leave it at that. Go out and do life with the love of Jesus. Defined as that sense of being willing to lay down your life for another. And even if none of those other things happen, change will start to happen in your life. You'll start to really just have this sense of sort of participating in the kingdom of God and in doing what it is that we're called to do. In my sense is, if you know, it's, there's an old Jewish proverb about this man who reads the scriptures and he gets all excited and he says, he talks about how he's going to go out and he's going to change the world. And then he stops for a minute and he goes, well, he's like, but the world is so big. Maybe I should start with something smaller. I know I'll start with my country. And then he thinks for a little while longer and he goes, well, but you know, my country's pretty big too. Maybe I should start with my town. No, my town is big. Maybe I'll start with my street. No, my family. I know I shall start with myself. And that's how it works. Once you start with yourself, it'll continue to just carry on from there. So I'd like to invite our uh, praise team to come back up now. We're just going to take a little bit more time in worship. Um, we have communion available on either side of our platform. And uh, if you have not, I saw some of you going up earlier. If you have not done that and, and would like to, it is available for everyone. Um, I will say this, though. We're going to do things a little bit differently on Christmas Eve. So um, come on Christmas Eve and find out. But we're going to do uh, what I call a blessing of the families. So um, I'll just tell you, as you, uh, we're going to invite everyone to come up together, really as a family. You know, like if you were here with parents and children or whatever your family unit looks like, we're going to sort of invite you to come up and to take communion together as a family. And then um, we want to bless you and say a blessing over you um, as we sort of celebrate Christmas and prepare to go into the new year. Uh, and I just really like the idea of doing that. So that's kind of one of the things that we've got in mind for, uh, for Christmas Eve. So 5 o'clock next Saturday. Uh, and just to reiterate, that will be our only service for the weekend. Okay, So we'll do Saturday night, 5 p.m., and then there won't be anything here on Sunday. But as we go into this time of worship, I just want to be quiet for a moment and, um, 
and just pray to the Holy Spirit to see if there is anything that uh, the Spirit wishes to do this morning with us or among us. And so we're just going to wait a little bit. Andre, would you mind turning the lights off, please? So Holy Spirit, come. Father, I just pray that you would send your spirit now down among us. Father, we know theologically that your spirit has been with us this entire time. But we, what we ask now is that your spirit would become manifestly present among us, that we would see, know, feel, sense the spirit's presence.